Hello out there, and welcome again to another episode of The Cotton Companion, a bi-weekly conversation between the editors and friends of Cotton Grower Magazine. My name is Beck Barnes. I'm the editor here at Cotton Grower, and I'm here today with our magazine's online editor, Mr. Jim Stebman. Hello, Jim. Hello, Beck. Uh, we are entering mid-August, and temperatures, uh, by the grace of God, have begun to sort of cool down here. We're getting into the 70s and 80s overnight here in Memphis and uh, elsewhere in the Mid-South, so that is a welcome development, uh, as I'm sure most of you all would agree if that is indeed happening in your corner of the cotton belt. Um, you all no doubt have one eye on harvest prep. Uh, we're getting towards that point in the season. Today what we want to do is drop uh, a little cotton industry knowledge on you as you prepare to finish strong here in the 2015 crop year. We're going to begin uh, this episode as we do each uh, by letting Jim lead us through a brief discussion of the most pressing news items from the past couple of weeks. There's been a lot going on. After that, we're going to discuss one of cotton's most pesky yield-robbing pests, nematodes. Uh, finally, we got a great interview uh, lined up with Dow AgriScience's Jonathan Siebert, who I caught up with earlier this summer down in the Mississippi Delta, and I asked him a lot about the latest deregulatory news uh, for the Enlist weed system in cotton. So as you can tell, we've got a lot, we've got a great show lined up for you today. We sincerely thank you for joining us and stick with us. We'll be right back following this quick break. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Welcome back, everyone. As Beck said, it's, uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks in the cotton industry, uh, and probably more interesting in the last few days uh, since USDA released the, uh, the August 12th production and supply demand report. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of time to take a look at that because it's really caused quite a bit of a stir in the industry. Uh, as, as we all know, we, uh, we were dealing with a fairly low number of acres uh, and, uh, and production anticipated somewhere right around 14.5 million bales based on earlier projections from USDA. This week they dropped, uh, sort of dropped a hammer on the industry to a certain extent, one that a lot of people and analysts were certainly not expecting. Uh, they're now saying the U.S. crop will be estimated at 13, just a shade over 13 million bales. Uh, most people honestly were expecting the crop to be a little bit larger, not smaller. Than the, uh, than the previous number of 14.5 million. Uh, U.S. acreage planted, and this is all based on actual grower surveys uh, conducted over the last month. Uh, U.S. acreage dropped from 9 million acres 
to 8.9. It's not a huge drop, but it is still significant when it comes down to, uh, to production. And more importantly, the, uh, the acres to be harvested, the total number of acres they're looking at being harvested, dropped another 600,000 acres. So they're anticipating that abandonment uh, and, and other problems with the crop are going to, uh, to reduce the final output. Did they, Jim, I hate to jump in there and step on your toes, did they, do we mention why that we're looking at this number of uh, abandoned acres? I think what they've done is they've gone back, the, the initial projections were based on an estimated, num an estimated abandonment this year considering the good start that the crop got off to with all the rain in Texas and things like that. USD appears to have backed off from that just a little bit and gone back to some of their normal or standard abandonment percentages and, and plug those back in which uh, which you know if you look at reports out of Texas right now you're, you're starting to see some some problems with uh, with acres dryland acres in particular that, that had plenty of rain to start the year with but now that the temperatures have climbed back over 100 degrees consistently uh, they're really struggling to uh, you know to get a crop on the plants so I think a factor of that plus just basically what they were hearing from growers led them to, uh, to change these numbers. I see. Uh, on the export, on the, on the world supply perspective, uh, USDA chain increased uh, exports from our 2014 crop year, which just ended, uh, increased those another 200,000 bales. Uh, add that to uh, $100,000 bale, 100,000 bale reduction from the past crop year beginning stocks and a 200,000 200, bale increase in, the, in the, what they call the unaccounted number. So that means U.S. beginning stocks on hand going into this brand new marketing year were lowered to just about 500,000 bales. That's a big drop that I don't think very many people were, uh, were anticipating. Uh, they were also looking at the at world supply and things like that. Not only are they expecting uh, the crop in the U.S. to uh, to be down somewhat, they're also expecting uh, the crops in both China and India to be reduced. So it's been an interesting uh, an interesting week, interesting few days since these numbers were dropped on August 12th. And really and truly, the impact on the market has been kind of interesting. Uh, Prior to the release of the numbers, the uh, cotton price had dropped to its lowest point uh, in several years, dropped down to about 61.2 cents, uh, with some people figuring that we, if, if the numbers didn't change or we, we didn't get good news out of these reports, uh, that the cotton price could, heaven forbid, drop into the 50s for a short period of time. Uh, in reality, once the market had a chance to kind of digest the results, of, uh, of this report, uh, cotton prices went limit up later that day, uh, jumping up to 60, 64.8 cents per pound, and then climbed another penny, climbed up to about 65.79 cents the next day. So I think overall, as people sit back and look at this, they're, they're seeing it as a, as a fairly bullish report. Um, I'm not sure that uh, from what I've what I've read that uh, that the market completely understood it, completely understands all the ramifications or the or the reasons behind it, uh, and quite honestly, we probably won't know anything until we see how how the production year finishes out. So that's uh, that's kind of the the interesting news out of uh, out of the industry right now. 
Yeah, indeed. I'll, I'll be glad to, when we get some of our economist friends uh, back on the program, certainly Dr. Don Shirley, and uh, you know we speak with and and provide a platform for Dr. O.A. Cleveland's market market mm -hmm. analysis each week. So it'll be interesting to see what these guys have to say about this eventful uh, past several days. It, here it will it will be interesting. I think uh, my my guess is uh, after all the work we've done with uh, with O.A. Cleveland is he will probably be sitting back smiling at some of these numbers, saying these are things USDA should have done months ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, so he's, uh, you know, he's he's always been calling for these changes. So I'm sure he's he's pleased to finally see them. But yeah. but we'll see. Indeed. Looking ahead at uh, at a couple of other items, real quick. Uh, Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE, as the industry calls them, uh, finally appears to be getting its new world cotton contracts, cotton futures contract off the ground. Looks like we're headed for a November second launch with that pending all the final regulatory approvals. And basically what this is, is, uh, is a new contract for buying and selling cotton worldwide that, uh, that will run trade alongside or work concurrently with the current cotton number two contract that has been in place for years and years and years. Uh, it is sort of the world benchmark, uh, and it's, but it's only allowed for delivery of U.S. cotton. Uh, the rest of the world has kind of used it as a guideline for, for all the other sales. But under the new World Cotton Futures contract, uh, you're looking at pricing and moving cotton uh, from the U.S., from Australia, Brazil, India, Benin, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, and Mali, with 12 delivery points spread out throughout the United States, Australia, Taiwan, and Malaysia. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how all this plays out once it finally gets up and running. It's something the, uh, the cotton merchants uh, and the, the folks who move cotton and sell cotton have been pushing for for several years. And then just one final note, sort of going back to, uh, to our last podcast where we spent a little bit of time talking about the possibilities and the potentials for, uh, for a merger between Monsanto and Syngenta. Well, there's really been no actual movement since that time on the deal, except in, in sort of anecdotal ways right now. A lot of, uh, there's been a lot of speculation out there from regulatory folks saying, yes, if this goes through, there's going to be more regulatory hurdles than anybody realizes, so you know, proceed with caution. Uh, and then on another hand, you have some Syngenta shareholders uh, who are going, basically saying, well, if Monsanto will offer 5% more than they've already offered, then, then we might be in good shape. We might be able to see this happen. Uh, and then in turn, it appears that, uh, that the folks at BASF may also be readying their own offer to, uh, to acquire Syngenta. So stay tuned. It appears that, uh, that this soap opera is going to continue for quite a while, and, uh, and we'll just all kind of sit back and, and see where it comes out. Yeah, it's interesting to see the other companies, ad companies, sort of names get involved mm -hmm. in various reports. You wonder how much is posturing. You wonder how much is, you know, where some of this information is coming from. Um, and how much of it is, is being discussed out of competitive nature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely interesting stuff. It's almost, almost a defensive pers perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. 
So very good, Jim. Uh, appreciate your news bringing us up to date on the latest news. Uh, I want to put the pump the brakes right there on this conversation. And when we come back from a short break, we're going to be talking about a cotton pest that many of y'all, many of our listeners are unfortunately all too familiar with, nematodes. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Well, welcome back with us. We want to talk now about something that unfortunately all too many of y'all, all too many of our cotton producing listeners uh, are familiar with, and that's nematode damage. Um, this is something that uh, you may not be aware of. I certainly wasn't, but this is not a problem that has been as destructive throughout the course of cotton production in the United States as we've seen it here in the past decade or so. Um, I wasn't aware of this until recently, but uh, annual percentages of beltwide yield losses due to nematodes uh, have been recorded since the 1952 crop. This is courtesy of the National Cotton Council. Uh, these records were provided by uh, Dr. a guy named Dr. Don Blazengame, who was a coordinator for the Beltwide Nematode Survey and Education Program, and uh, also the chairman of the Cotton Disease Loss Estimate Committee. He, uh, he, he had these following observations. He made this chart on the percentage of yield losses since he began collecting these uh, national st statistics uh, back in 1952. It's interesting, these, I I'm looking at a bar graph that this guy produced. All of them hover throughout the 50s, throughout the 60s, up until about 1972, below 2%. I mean, they're, they're, I mean it's not good to lose 2% of your crop to this pest. But uh, comparatively, not that huge of a deal. You get to, get to the mid-70s, they jump up to around 3%. By the late 80s, back down below 2%, down to 1%. And then suddenly, uh, around about, mm, they start climbing around 95 or so, steep incline. And you get to 2006, and they're all the way north of 5 to 5.5%. So... That year, 2006, was actually the highest yield loss to nematode damage uh, on record in history in the United States. It was at 5.32% in 2006. Uh, the lowest yield loss to nematode damage was lower than 1%, 0.91% in 1958. So you, you have to wonder what's gone on in the preceding, oh gosh, my math skills, 50 and 12, somewhere around 60 years. Um, to drive sort of nematode populations, nematode losses so high up over that time frame. Uh, the, the average, if you're wondering, over the 50-year period from 52 to, I guess, 2002, 
was 2.47% nematode uh, losses. So we, we, this is an issue that we could focus on in every issue of Cotton Grower Magazine. I mean, it's something that you all live with today and are constantly trying to beat back. You know, it seems like uh, resistant pigweed in particular gets a lot of the headlines literally in our magazine. Uh, there are insect pests that get a lot of the headlines. Nematodes are a persistent nagging influence in this market. So we went out in our combi com combination August-September issue. We actually sent Jim down to South Georgia to sort of interview a lot of folks down there, an area that's heavily populated uh, with nematodes and sort of get the latest sort of defenses that growers and consultants are using against this pest. So Jim, tell us a little about your trip. Well, first of all, uh, it was a great trip. Uh, folks in South Georgia are having a great year in terms of cotton production. Uh, and, but, but quite honestly, as, as you said, that part of the country is almost, you know, there is one of the, what you would consider a ground zero in terms of root knot nematode infestations. I visited with one grower who, uh, who farms basically 2,100 acres uh, just north of Tifton. And, but in that 2,100 acres, he's got seven different soil types, ranging from, you know, just good old basic productive loamy soils to clay to sand. And sand is basically the, the real indicator for, uh, for nematode activity. Uh, you mentioned pigweed, which is interesting because he made one comment while I was visiting with him. He's basically comparing nematodes to pigweeds. Uh, I think his comment, on uh, his exact quote was, if you don't think you have them, you probably do. And the longer you put off some sort of treatment, the higher those numbers are going to go. Uh, he's talking about nematodes? He's talking about nematodes. Yeah, could easily substitute. He could absolutely easily substitute pigweeds yeah, in. But, pigweed but that gives you an idea of the mindset of, of what the growers know they're dealing with at this point. Uh, I also visited with Dr. Bob Kimmerite at the University of Georgia uh, offices or, or branch there in Tifton. And, and Bob has done a lot of work. He's sort of been the, uh, the, the go-to nematode guy in the southeast for, uh, for a number of years. And he and I sit down and visited, and you talked about the, uh, the range of infestation. Uh, they did a survey in Georgia several years ago that showed 72% of the state's fields infested with root knot nematodes. And that's not including reniform, sting, or lance nematodes, which are, are lesser pests. Uh, Yet at the same time, even with those numbers, uh, Bob was very optimistic about the prospect now of managing nematodes the way they, they need to be managed. And specifically, he was saying, we now have tools that we've needed for a while, while to fight this fight. We've got uh, nematode-resistant cotton varieties from three different companies. Uh, they have a new nematicide, vellum total. From, uh, from Bayer Crop Sciences that uh, is in its first year of introduction uh, to help complement seed treatments. And they still have Telone, which is a, uh, a nematicide that has been on the market for years that growers have, uh, have embraced in this market as a way to, uh, to help lower nematode populations in their fields. Uh, so basically the takeaway from Bob was we can't grow cotton in Georgia without some sort of, some sort of way of managing nematodes. The interesting part then in going in and, and visiting with, with growers and, and some of the consultants was the way they're combining these products. 
this year. Uh, most of these growers are putting tailone under uh, under a lot of their acres to uh, to help prepare the fields uh, before planting. They are doing their own test plot work in in most cases to compare different situations with nematode control possibilities on different types of soils, and that includes comparing the three nematode resistant varieties, one from Delta Pine, one from Stoneville, one from Phytogen, in side-by-side -side comparisons. Uh, also looking at comparisons of acres treated with Telone versus acres treated with Bellum Total. Uh, looking at a couple of other ways that they can possibly go in to save some money right up front, particularly in these days of 60 cent, 60, 65 percent, 60 to 60 cent cotton, sorry. And, uh, and also look to see if what the possibilities will be or what the yield potential might be for using some of these varieties by themselves with a seed treatment in areas where nematode populations are much, much lower. So it's, uh, it was a very interesting trip, very educational, very optimistic about how, uh, how growers are, are dealing with this and working with it. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, didn't put a plug in for, for Bob Kimmerite's annual we need to sample for nematodes uh, message that, uh, that we hear every year. Basically, nematode sampling in the fall following harvest uh, is simply important. Particularly, even if you're using these products and you're using some of the new varieties and things like that, you may see a decrease in the overall nematode population but you won't know for sure until you sample. And it's just a, a really good way, the, the best way, to have the information in hand to, uh, to give you some idea, give growers an idea of what they need to do to prepare for next season. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I know that Dr. Kimmerite does, does great work over there. He's kind of become our go-to guy on uh, nematodes, so he probably gets tired of us leaning on him as often as we do, but we appreciate his efforts. Um, to be sure, you know, we did, or I did a, a short story back in, gosh, would have been, this is November, the November issue of 2014, on sort of how, you know, quietly, or maybe not quietly, these seed companies have each been slipping out new nematode-tolerant uh, varieties, nematode-resistant varieties. They all get very particular about which term you use there. Uh, with each, uh, each annual class of variety introductions into the commercial market. You know, with, um, with Phytogen, uh, I know they are very proud of uh, Phytogen 417 WRF and Phytogen 427 WRF, uh, which feature nematode resistant. And, and one thing, in speaking to folks at Dow Phytogen, you hear um, they, they talk about bringing these things along, bringing these specific varieties along, it's all done by good old-fashioned native genes and a breeding program. I, I spoke with a, a Scott Fox there at Phytogen. He was telling me that uh, his quote was, we, we have taken two native genes and bred those into our germplasm, and we are seeing root knot nematode resistance with this product where we are able to reduce test populations by up to 80 or 90%. He's speaking of Phytogen 417 and Phytogen 427. Uh, to be sure, the other companies... Uh, are using the same the same sort of uh, technique when you're talking about bringing along phytogen specific varieties um, aided no doubt the reason you are starting to see 
one or two in each company's uh, class of variety introductions every year, they are aided by this, what, what we've gone back to on this podcast before, molecular marking, which just is a super tool for these cotton breeders at each of these companies across the cotton belt. Delta Pine is no stranger to this stuff. They were very proud. In their class of 14, they have an introduction, DP1454NRB2RF, which the NR uh, stands for nematode resistance. They're proud of that one. Spoke with a gentleman named Jorge Quaresma out of their Lubbock breeding station. Uh, he says this year the breeding group has hundreds and hundreds of plots across West Texas so they can find varieties that are resistant to, to uh, root knot nematodes. So, you know, Delta Pine, as you would expect, has just really ramped up its efforts to deal with this product, or, or rather to deal with this yield robbing pest. Uh, Bayer, their variety is no different. They have, uh, they're very proud um, of a recent release. Fibermax 2011 GT, which demonstrated strong root, root knot nematode resistance and uh, laying the groundwork for Bayer crop science researchers to kind of examine the variety's genetic background, help identify those nematode tolerant gene or genes, and uh, continue to use that variety in particular in their breeding program to produce further uh, uh, varieties that feature this characteristic. So. It's just something that, to be sure, these companies who you deal with out there day in and day out are highly aware of this product. They're very reactive to the problems that you all face out there. And, uh, you know, I think the loss of Timic, as Jim alluded to, really spurred on a lot of this research that you're seeing, just bukus of research to deal with this pest. And I think it, it also bears mentioning, you know, one of the things that we've done this year, if for those of you who, are, uh, who also read Cotton Grower Magazine, we have uh, we've tried to take a tried to focus on a different cotton breeder uh, in just about every issue, and to a person, the people that we have talked to so far and that we have highlighted and profiled in the magazine, every one of them points to the nematode resistant varieties as a major focus and a major success in their breeding programs. Uh, they may have all basically been using the same same ways to get there. Uh, and certainly the results are now, sh are now manifesting themselves and, and showing up really, really well in the field. Very true, very true. We could talk about nematodes. Like I say, we could do it every issue. We could talk about it here until we're blue in the face. We're going to ease out of that conversation. We're going to take a little break here. When we come back, I want to play for you an interview that I did with a gentleman named Jonathan Siebert. He's down there. He's based out of Greenville, Mississippi. He works for Dow AgriScience and he goes all over the place uh, to speak to, uh, you know, recently the focus has been on education regarding the Enlist Weed Management System. And they actually just had, they being Dow AgriScience, just had some big news come out of USDA there around the third, the end of the third week of July, uh, where USDA deregulated the Enlist Weed Management System in cotton. That's the third and final crop that the company was needing, or rather uh, awaiting deregulation from USDA on. They're still not 100% out of the woods yet, but it's an exciting development for cotton producers who are looking for a new tool against uh, glyphosate resistant weeds that are so uh, uh, problematic in much of the cotton belt. So. Jonathan is here to explain all that to us, uh, and we will dive into that interview right after we take this quick break.
Okay, so we are down in Leland, Mississippi today. It's July 31st, and we are at a Dow AgriSciences Driving Farm Solutions Media Day. And I'm here with Jonathan Siebert. He is the Enlist Field Sales Manager, is that correct? Sales Leader. Sales Leader, excuse me. And uh, he is, like myself, a uh, I'm from Greenville, Mississippi originally, and that's where Jonathan is based now. He lives there in Greenville, so we are just a short 10-minute drive away here in Leland. And uh, we have been learning about a variety of topics today, but namely Enlist, and that is in the news, as you all well know, since just last week, um, deregulatory news came down the pipe. Uh, and Jonathan, maybe you can help me so I, so I don't get mixed up. What what did we learn, I believe it was last Thursday, in regards to the Enlist uh, technology? Right, so last Thursday the news we received was deregulation of the Enlist trait in cotton, specifically from USDA, which was kind of the final piece of the puzzle um, when, when you look at all of the crops and all the, the regulatory process that we've been through, because we'd received deregulation of Enlist corn and Enlist soybeans in 2014, and uh, Enlist Cotton was the final piece of the puzzle. So now we have deregulation of all three crops in the United States. Okay, I know that there are, there's a lot of red tape when we're talking about deregulation with uh, federal uh, agencies, uh, for lack of maybe the correct term. But so is the path totally cleared now? Do you guys have the green light to move forward commercially with Enlist in Cotton? So the path is clear in the United States. We have the, we have the authority to commercialize and, and sell this technology here. But obviously today, um, you know, we're in a, in a marketplace where there's global trade. So we have to be aware of foreign markets and make sure we have all those foreign approvals in place. And there still are some regulatory uh, process to, to overcome in some of the uh, key import markets that, that could um, that could impact what we do from a commercial standpoint in 2016. Okay, so you would say from here though, it does look like things look good to be able to introduce this product in 2016 in cotton, correct? Yes, in cotton, <coughs> excuse me, in cotton. That's fine. <coughs> I think I might need something. <laughs> yes, in, in cotton, um, we, we do plan to launch the Enlist trait in phytogen germplasm in 2016. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, we don't want to do anything that may disrupt the grain trade or, or global markets. So at all times, we want to make sure that um, we have, uh, we, we make sure that, that all trades that go into foreign markets are approved. And um, should, should we still have to uh, do some type of stewarding or something like that, we would definitely uh, make sure that we don't, um, we don't do anything that would disrupt the, uh, the grain trade or, or the global markets. And, um, and this is something that we've had to do this year in, uh, in 2015 with our stewarded corn launch. So um, we, we still are waiting some key export approvals for, uh, for corn, but we did have a launch um, this year where we were able to steward that grain to make sure that it stayed within the U.S. I see. Okay. So ultimately, there's so not a 100% sort of in the clear as of yet, but no doubt about it, the news last week was welcome news for Dow AgriSciences. Can you maybe just tell me about your response? Was it relief after so long? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of relief. Um, you know, 
I guess, uh, yeah, relief is a good way to put it. Um, there's obviously a lot of anxiety over time with all the regulatory process and the amount of time it takes. And, and we've had some regulatory delays. So uh, it's, it's a relief that we finally overcome this hurdle. And then a lot of, uh, I guess, excitement and anxiety around the commercialization and the launch and, and moving into the next phase. But um, having done this, pre-launch type activities for the last four years, uh, definitely ready to, to put this in the hand of farmers. I've, uh, I've been asked for years and years now, when is it coming, how soon can we get it? And um, I'm excited to be able to tell people now that you know it, it's time to go and, uh, and we can move into the next phase of this process. Very good, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. We, uh, we have been at this uh, Dow AgriSciences event today here in Leland and part of the program today, we heard from several farmers who have been sort of uh, enlist, um, oh, what would you guys call them? Uh, cooperators, I guess. They've had, they've had these test plots on there. Right, right, our enlist. Uh the, the enlist growers that had grower research plots. There we go, the grower research plots. And these guys um, had glowing reviews of the, of the system today. Uh, can, you, can you sort of tell me a little bit about our guy, one in particular, uh, the cotton grower. There were three growers on the panel, uh, one for, I guess, all three of the crops that um, enlist is registered for now. That's right. Uh, the grower who did cotton, actually all three of them had a little bit of cotton. I wanted to go up and shake their hands for having cotton in 2015. Uh, but the one specifically who had a cotton plot was tell, was saying that uh, he's in Belzona, Mississippi. He's got neighbors uh, with corn around him. He's got neighbors with tomatoes around him, which I didn't realize until he was talking about it, but that is traditionally a crop that is not tolerant at all with 2,4-D or has had issues with 2,4-D before. Can you kind of summarize what he was saying about his plot over there in Belzona? Right, so we did have uh, uh, several grower research plots throughout the cotton belt this year from uh, North Carolina down to Texas up into Kansas. So really all the cotton growing areas had, had a plot. The one that I was personally involved with was over in Belzona with uh, Dr. Trey Coger. And, um, and, and he did mention the fact that, you know, after we sprayed the plot, that he had uh, a good friend of his, a neighbor that had commercial tomato production, that he had let him know ahead of time that we were gonna be spraying and that he followed up and there were no issues whatsoever. And, and uh, I think it, it kind of reassured him that, you know, this chemistry does perform as advertised. Um, Dr. Koger has come to many of our field days and heard us talk about you know, the low drift, low volatility, all these uh, components of Colex D technology that are gonna help minimize that potential for off-target movement. And he was just reassured and, you know, and had a really good experience with the technology and, and it makes him excited to know that, you know, there is new chemistry coming along that's gonna help with some of the, uh, the problem weeds. Very good, I, I know that you just mentioned Colex D, that's been a big part of a lot of the education efforts that I've been witness to that you guys have been doing for, uh, I guess, a couple of years now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Colex D and sort of uh, how that technology helps with this product? Right, so Enlist Duo herbicide is the product that's designed for use over the top of Enlist crops, and it's a, a premix of glyphosate and 2,4-D choline. And um, that product has been going through a registration process kind of jointly with the traits, um, but through EPA, that's the agency that would, uh, that would regulate pesticides, obviously. And, and um, with the Colex D technology, what, what we get there is, um, 
is a reduction in volatility, so near zero volatility, 96% reduction in volatility compared to the esters. And the esters are what people uh, equate to, you know, volatility and kind of what has given 2,4-D a bad reputation in the past. So this, this product is, is truly a step change from old 2,4-D. Um, we've also got a drift reduction technology built into the jug already as well. It's going to help minimize driftable fines. This product has low odor, which is nice if you're applying around sensitive areas so uh, it doesn't have that phenol type smell that traditional 2,4-D does. And then it's got some nice handling characteristics as well that are just going to make it really easy for growers to use. And, and currently we do have registration for Enlist Duo on soybeans and corn in 15 states in the United States. Now obviously because we just received deregulation of cotton, now we're pursuing registration of that herbicide on Enlist Cotton and we anticipate to have that by the end of the year to fully enable the system for cotton growers uh, such as Dr. Coger. Very good. Yeah, I actually spoke with Dr. Coger. He's an interesting guy. He's here in Belzona, but he has a weed science background from, what did he say, Oklahoma? Oklahoma and Mississippi State. Oklahoma and Mississippi State. So he's a smart guy. Very smart. Uh, I mean, he's got his doctorate. And he's there in Belzona. He's been growing cotton uh, in some capacity. I think he told me for 15 years now. And uh, gosh, he doesn't look old enough to be have been got all this education and have been growing cotton for 15 years, does he? But um, he's he's a smart dude. He was saying it was very reassuring for him to have gone through this year. He said, you know, you know, to not have had any sort of drift, any issues with his neighbors. You know, it was a reassuring thing for him. He he did. He's like, you know, you got to be smart. You got to follow the label. You got to have common sense. That's right. But if you do all those things shouldn't have any any issues whatsoever. I mean, have you been hearing that sentiment? I know this isn't the only plot you've been helping with. Uh, right. Have you been hearing that throughout? Right, so I've, I've done these grower research plots now for the last three years, um, you know, all through the Mid-South. Uh, I've got cooperators out in Texas that I've visited with as well, um, you know, and, and then throughout the Cotton Belt in, in the East. And, and that's what I was telling one of the other reporters today is that it's, it's really, you know, uh, satisfying to me to hear these growers call and be excited and basically reverberate what I've been telling them for the last three or four years at field tours. You know, when uh, when they call you up and say, wow, it, it really didn't drift. It went straight to the ground. Those new nozzles you're recommending are great. Or, you know, it didn't smell. Um, we, we couldn't pick up any odor. It didn't smell like 2,4-D. And, you know, wow, the weed control is just great. Um, it kind of it drives home both the fact that the uh, the science behind the technology is very sound and that we've we've been able to validate this with third party cooperators but now it's getting out to the field and it's continued to be validated um, so so that's just uh, really reassuring um, and and exciting for me to hear that growers are experiencing the same thing that I've seen in research plots and and in these pre-commercial activities that we've been doing yeah yeah very good I, so. You know, I, I've kind of been, we've, I've talked about, not specifically with you during this interview, but, um, you know, it's not moving off target. We've talked a little bit about how it's easy. It's good with a tank clean out. I need to get around to what it's designed, it's efficacy. Um, and these guys all were very, uh, uh, you know, pleased uh, with its efficacy on getting rid of some of these weeds. Can you talk about how these guys are using it? I believe Dr. Coger was saying he went in a couple weeks after planting with a tank mix. And is that, uh, you know, I guess tell me a little bit about the windows for application. Right, right. So the way that we positioned it in these grower research plots and kind of what we'll recommend as the system rolls out 
is that we always want to start with a clean field to begin with. So uh, the appropriate burn down herbicides, whether that be uh, glyphosate 2,4-D with uh, some type of residual, you know, early upfront January, February timeframe. And then one of the nice things about Enlist Duo is it enables an application at planting with no plant back interval. So you could go in, burn down with Enlist Duo and then immediately plant cotton right behind that, Enlist cotton right behind that without having that 30-day plant back that we see today with, uh, with 214 to burn down. And so all of our growers were able to utilize that component of the system as well to make sure we started with a clean field. We then went in and applied a residual of their choice. Um, and then uh, we followed that up with uh, post-emergent applications of Enlist Duo and Glufosinate because the system enables all of those herbicides. And everyone was very pleased with the results. We had clean fields. Um, the you know multiple modes of action, the ability to rotate with the glufosinate and enlist duo in, in corn and I mean in cotton and soybeans was just uh, just a really nice one two punch to take care of some of their weed problems that they're seeing today. Very good, very good. Now this I, I kinda wanna wrap it up. We we on this uh, event that I was at today we were talking with a couple of the cotton agronomists, uh, Dr. Brooks Blanche, uh, Dr. Chris Main and they were talking about sort of integrating this trait in some uh, varieties that will be coming forth. Um, I want to say in the next year. That's the everything goes well. That's right. I guess what I'm working towards here in a long-winded way, we could start seeing these things in some varieties starting in 2016. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So with Enlist Cotton, we've got trade deregulation. Obviously, we need the herbicide component to be approved. We anticipate that by the end of the year. And we will have a launch of Enlist Cotton in 2016 in phytogen germplasm. And then, um, like we've mentioned before, we've got the, uh, the key regulatory hurdles in the U.S. have been overcome for corn and soybeans. We're still waiting on some key export markets. We understand the importance of not disrupting the grain trade, but we will continue with our launch activities as we did in 2015. And um, if we need to take the appropriate measures to make sure that we steward that, then uh, then Dow will do that in, in a responsible manner. I see. Very good. I guess. I mean, what do you what are you going to do with your summer if this thing finally goes through? And I, I see you at you know a half dozen field days. I know you do two dozen more that I don't see you at during sure. the summer. So this thing finally goes through commercially. Are you just going to go to the beach and? Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going up to Indianapolis next week, and I think I'm going to buy a boat while I'm up there. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but no, and it, seriously, we we stay committed to educating and training. So um, I imagine that uh, you know our activities will not change. We we've had these diamond showcase events now for five years. They've been extremely popular. We continue to gain more and more in terms of attendance every year. So I anticipate we'll we'll probably continue some type of uh, outreach and training activity. Um, as we continue to, to expand uh, awareness around Enlist. Very good. Are there more this summer that you'd like to plug? While well, I got you here, this podcast will be going out here in the next week. Yes, yeah, so um, in, in, the, in the South spe specifically, um, I know we have two more Diamond Showcase events coming up, one in North Carolina and one in Lubbock. And uh, if you're in that geography, I would contact your local Dow AgriSciences representatives to find out when and where those tours are going to be as well as uh, some additional small plot university field days. Um, we have one coming up in, uh, in Stuttgart, Arkansas next week. Um, the following week after that, uh, second week of August, we have a plot in Kaiser, Arkansas, one in Belmont, Alabama. 
So there's still some opportunities to get out this year and see, uh, see these enlist plots for yourself. Very good. Well, Jonathan Siebert, we appreciate your time today and uh, appreciate y'all having us down here on a relatively nice weather day for sure. And uh, we will be talking to you soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Beck. All right. All right. So that'll just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion podcast. We thank you sincerely for joining us. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please, by all means, tell your farmer friends about us. Tell them about this podcast. Uh, they can find it by going to cottongrower.com and searching for Cotton Companion there in the search bar or by subscribing to our channel on iTunes if you're an iTunes guy. Uh, if, you're, if you are listening via iTunes, please go ahead and just subscribe to the channel. Uh, leave us a rating. Let us know what you think of our pod. You can also do that uh, by following us on social media and reaching, us out, reaching out to us there. Uh, we are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter and on Facebook you can find us simply by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. You'll find our latest issue, the August-September issue, featuring uh, this nice feature that Jim mentioned earlier, his, his uh, nematode-focused feature from South Georgia. You can find that hitting your mailboxes the first week of September. This podcast is produced by Mark Antonelli, who works at the Mothership, Meister Media Worldwide, in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes, and I'll be back with you in two weeks' time on the next episode of The Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own Cotton Companion, Jim Stebbin, we urge you to keep cool out there. Best of luck to you, your family, and your farm.